All right, welcome back, everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome back to another epic episode of The Charlie Shrem Show, where twice a week together, we get to dive deep with some of Bitcoin and crypto's most influential leaders to truly understand trailblazers, people that are sitting, working, doing the work, making the relationships, bringing the consumer applications, proving out why crypto actually exists and all this technology, validating it. And in the meantime, we're learning a lot of information along the way and we're having a lot of fun and we're telling a lot of stories. And we're on this episode of Decentralized Identity. We've been talking about it through a lot of different topics and, and a couple of different lenses. I'm excited to welcome back Ingo Rube, the founder and CEO of the Kilt Protocol, Bolt Labs. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you for having me again. Of course, it's really exciting. And, and Gustav Hemmelmayer, you're the chief legal officer of Kilt Protocol as well. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. It's going to be a lot of fun. I know you guys are really deep into it, working on a lot of different projects. We've been speaking about it. But Gustav, I'd love to hear a little bit about you and, and meet you. Tell me, what, what did you work on before and where do you come from? I come from Austria and I uh, have been working in tech and startups for probably 10, 15 years before I joined the team. I've been working for SAP, so traditional infrastructure for technologies. And I started working here from the beginning, which is uh, really cool because I get to be part of the process where we were thinking about what kind of things we want to work on, what makes sense in, in the blockchain ecosystem, what is a good project and not just a quick project. And I had the pleasure to be part of that and, and think through it from all kinds of angles. So I got to watch how the tech was made and was thought out. I was part of creating a white paper and I was dealing with all the legal and compliance part of a project, basically making it up as we started because there was much around yet. Yeah. There was a bit of stuff from the US you could read and there were was all kinds of lawyers who had their specific fields that we're working on. And my job was to think that together for our project in a way that makes it as compliant and as safe as possible, which is really a cool, cool, innovative space. It's so interesting because when you're going to university and you're growing up and you're studying to be like an attorney or a lawyer, they just kind of tell you or there's like an assumption that an attorney or a lawyer just kind of like works in an office for a law firm somewhere. And then they tell you like, oh, all you tech and finance people can go and start startups. But they don't tell you that the chief legal officer is one of the most important roles in any tech or startup. And for if you're doing medical, crypto, insurance, anything you're doing, like why, why is that? I, I'm just curious, you think? I think it's very traditional to be in a in a law firm, and I think that's also what's portrayed in pop culture because it's oh interesting. It it looks exciting to have all kinds of different things coming in all the time. For me, that wasn't an option because I really wanted to dig in what the people that I'm addressing are doing. And the problem is in a law firm, if you're billing by the hour, people come and they want to be quick and they want to have a quick solution and then they want to leave. And if you stay in a company, you really get to watch the process and you really see what's happening with your advice and people will come back and say, now we need an additional thing. And they would do it without watching a bill because you're there anyway. Oh, good point. You get a lot of feeling for what you do, why you do it. And you you also get to be part of the team instead of an outsider, which is also exciting. Ingo, Gustav mentioned something earlier that I wrote down. He said something that what separates a good project from a quick project 
How do you guys like, how do you evaluate that? How do you know what in any industry, whether something is like a good project or just something? Because a quick project can also be a good one, but you're also wanting to build like long-term solutions for like a long-term goal. A lot of people don't know how to separate. And it's also easier to like start and build a company to solve a very quick problem. Yeah, I'm not sure if uh, Gustav was just polite when he said quick. Uh, <laughs> actually wanted to say shitcoin or something like that. I, I think that's it goes more into that direction. So when, when we started up, because we have the industry background, we have industry companies which, which own partially our company here and which are privately owned and stuff. And those people actually don't want to get into, into the news like uh, with oh, yeah. and stuff like that. And also, we try to do something extremely useful, and, and we have a lot of ideas, which we all actually like around identity. I think this, this is something that everyone needs, and, and we want to build something which is just not quick, and uh, then two years later, we all do something else. When, when you look at the team we have here, we basically didn't change the team for the last six years. It's just a little bit growing from time to time, but people always stay here. So we, we're not here for the quick money. We are here for for building something really useful for the world. And yeah, you've been around for a long time. We've been around for six years now. Yeah, that's amazing. I want to get right into it, Ingo. We've learned that DIDs and verifiable credentials are, and that they what they are. We've been talking about it the last couple episodes, and that they enable self sovereign identity. We've also seen examples from industry and blockchain where these new standards are already used. But I think maybe this will not lead to mass adoption. Unless, as we've kind of alluded to a couple of times, the government also adopt these standards. And this is probably exactly what they don't want to do, right? Yeah, this is what we always thought. Uh, so actually, that's, so we had exactly the same thinking. So when I was asked like in the first couple of years of our company, okay, when will I have my, uh, I don't know, my driver's license really on a DID or on a verifiable credential? I always said, this is something which is going to come like grassroots movement. So first of all, scientists and they make all those fantastic standards and then there's some crazy people like us implementing it and then there's some other crazy people using it and then at one point industry notices wow this is really interesting but then they adopt it and then it becomes like a de facto standard and i was always thinking that governments are actually last now it seems that governments try to overtake industry a little bit. So we see a lot of initiatives since a year or so from governments uh, recognizing DIDs and verifiable credentials actually as the future of digital identity. And I find this very, very interesting because, as you said, actually, we would have thought that they are not very much interested in it because it's self-sovereign, it's technology, it's hard to understand. When I talked with the German governments like three years ago, it was or five years ago, maybe mm. it was really, really completely impossible to convey this to them and, and to actually get them excited about it because they said, oh, this is something very, uh, we, we lose control basically and stuff like that. Now, governmental institutions from all over the world, from Europe, from the US, come and actually start looking at those standards and saying, this is exactly what we want to have. And this is what we want to, to have implemented. And this is very interesting. It seems that they see the dangers of the centralized identity in the internet right now and look for solutions. And yeah. then there are solutions because those standards are already there. So there's nothing that they have to make research for the next 10 years about. Those 10 years have already passed and everything is there. And you can find solutions which are already implemented, like what we do. And uh, so it, it's, it, it's now happening in the government. And it's, happening much faster than I 
would ever have thought. I want to take a step back here because the way we kind of associate our identity right now is through these like plastic identity cards that we have. In some countries, I think Estonia, they have like an e-residency program and some countries around the world have like gotten better whether institutions are, are online, you know. But what would change? I mean, like what type of privacy could we have added and and what other type of things could it attach to related to us about our activity on the internet? Maybe I start on that. I'm thinking the governments are trying to cut out the middleman, which is private companies that are currently providing identity for online. And by going full in with government identities that are issued directly into a wallet of a user and that have all kinds of privacy preserving features, they are on the one hand cutting out those who are currently massively profiting by tracking people online and by providing their identity in a way, but also being able to delete them anytime or, uh, you know, have all kinds of power about their identity. And cutting them out is a very, very good idea. Also from a from a human rights perspective, because it is kind of awkward that we have these huge companies dealing with identities while the governments are still issuing paper and plastic stuff that we carry in our wallets while You're 50% right. of lives online. So we've been talking about like having these DIDs now. And if we remove these, you're right, we have like Facebook login, Google Authenticator, all different methods of like, you know, going through KYC accreditation. We're constantly uploading our data. We all have copies of our passports or our driver's licenses, pictures of them ready to go in case we need to download a new application. Everyone knows that feeling, but it's kind of stupid. And it's also, we're giving up our data like all the time. Like it's just free. We can, it's all of our, our information is freely out. Anyone can buy it. It's just so broken. And all the infrastructures you probably know, it's, it's not out there. So at first, the idea of like single organizations, whether it's the government, at first, the idea is like, if they manage identity all together, and then we use that to interface with everything else, that sounds good because it's easier. But how can we ensure that crypto is used to make sure that all this data is still like kept on the client side and where it's like we're controlling it and it's not like the government can do all the bad stuff that these private companies were doing anyways? Yeah, this is actually exactly where the standards come in. So when you use the standards, which imply cryptography and good cryptography, okay. then this is basically out. So a government is, is going to issue you not your DID. Your DID is generated on your own wallet, on your own device. So this is your identifier. This is what you identify with. And what the government adds is a credential. So they basically check you, you have to go somewhere, I don't know what this process is going to be, but they issue, like they issued the, uh, the the plastic card to you, they issue something into your wallet. And then you own this thing, which is in your wallet, like with a plastic card, and you can use it forever, everything that you want to use it. And, and they definitely do not have a phone home functionality. So this wallet is not going to ask the government again, if you can really use your credential, you just use your credential. There's no way that the government notices where you use your credential for. And this is basically very similar to any other credential. And it's also important that not only the government can issue credentials, I can issue credentials to your wallet, and companies can issue credentials to your wallet, and basically anyone can. Maybe the government credential is a little bit more valuable for some um, things like traveling to another country, 
but there might be just uh, gaming credentials, there might be social media credentials, and they all go into the same wallet. And the wallet is basically there for you, for, for, uh, for making sure that the right cryptography is actually applied to whatever you do with it. And this is happening on your own device and not at some government server. And the only interaction that you have with the government is basically they issue the credential to you and then you're good to go and they, they never hear from you again. That's so cool. Are you guys working with any any governments or any agencies on, on like test piloting this? We are basically in talks with governments. It's it's not Hard, yet slow. working. This is all very, very fresh. So when I say, yeah, since a year, they seem to be interested. This means that they are basically coming out with the calls now so that you can participate. And a lot of, especially in Europe, a lot of yeah. paperwork has to be done and stuff like that. So there's no, I don't think that there's actual projects which are already implementing this. What, what for me is the, is the big news, actually, that they say they want to do that. And we see from one government, which is basically your government, that they actually started a call and they said, they, they this goes very specifically into one direction, which is travel documents. They said very clearly, anyone can apply, but if you don't use EIDs and verifiable credentials, then you don't have to apply. So they rule out every other kind of solution. They say they want exactly that. Oh, wow. Fantastic news. So the U.S. basically goes into that direction. And uh, for, for us, this is like, wow, we have been working six years, obviously not in the, in the wrong direction. <laughs> so, so this is actually pretty cool. And, and from Europe, what we see is that they recognize very far credentials and that they actually want every member state, of course, to uh, build their own wallet. That they are still not really convinced about the DID stuff, but they are they are totally convinced about the verifiable credential stuff, which is already very very good. So because they see that cryptography is necessary, that privacy is necessary, that you have your own wallet is necessary, and stuff like that. So we see that everyone, at least in the Western Hemisphere, is moving into that decentralized direction, which is fantastic news actually for anyone who lives in a decentralized world. It's so cool because verifiable credential is essentially an extension or continuance of like the early NFT technology or like a non-fungible token, a credential that goes to you, you know, whether it's like a token that can ever be moved or traded, but it's like a, more of a credential and it's issued by an authority. It's like a soul bound NFT, if you will. It's like attached to you when you're born, as opposed to like something that you're going to receive and then try to trade. And there's like a financial aspect to it. And it's so funny how like, Everyone was wondering a couple of years ago when people were making art on the internet with NFTs, like how would this venture into something that governments or people would actually use? And like, here we are today. It's it's really cool. Gustav, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I don't know. We, uh, I think soulbound token is, is a slightly different concept than, than verifiable credentials. And I've just been on a conference and, and watched a talk on, on soulbound token. And I didn't really delve into it enough yet. But I think what they have in common is that they are revocable by their issuer in case something is wrong or in case something expired yes. for, for some reason. And I'm not the tech guy. Maybe Ingo can add to that. For some reason, we think that verifiable credentials are the 
better concept because you can use them wider than soulbound tokens, but I'm not sure. Well, well, about that. Yeah, the, the soulbound tokens basically, which are something which comes out of Ethereum, and the Ethereum guys they were thinking of actually we need some kind of credential. Unfortunately, they didn't read yeah, the specification because it's all there so they could just have implemented it so they they thought of something something new and then of course that as a verifiable credentials is like uh, hundreds of scientists working for seven years and Solvon token is a bit like two people and a bottle of beer sitting together and ma- making something up so there's a little bit of a difference in, in depth actually I think the biggest difference between them is that the Solvon token actually starts with a crypto address and verifiable credential does not that's a huge difference because that means that the um, and that the Solvon token is only going to be relevant in inside the crypto world, which is also a beautiful world, but it is a small world compared to the rest of the world. And the verifiable credential is something that anyone will get. So uh, what my prediction would be that in 2030 or probably a couple of years earlier, we always thought 2030, but now I would almost bet on 2025, 2026, that you have your driver's license and your passport in form of a verifiable credential. And this is not going to be a soulbound token, because that would mean that you link your whole personality against one crypto address, which is not explainable to the majority of the population. Wow. Thank you. Thanks so much for explaining it because people have been asking me to explain what's going on there. So you mentioned travel documents, which is really exciting because I love traveling. Speaking of which, I didn't. Did you guys see that Americans will have to file like a, a similar ESTA that Europeans have to file when they come over to, to America? And in the next couple of years, it's like as an American right now, I can go to Europe without filing anything like request. I could just land and go. In a year or two, I'm going to have to file some documents similar as you in Austria. When you come over, you have to file like ESTA or something like that. So I think like we could really see some, we could see some KILT protocol DIDs integrated there somehow where it makes the filing of that easier because you already had your your government credential established prior. Yeah, that's a, that's that's one of the ideas, which I, I don't know if it's going to be first there. So for the US, it seems to be the the first piece where, where they're actually looking into. I'm not sure if this is going to happen in, in Europe. I think we in Europe we have other, at least in Germany, I can say we have extreme challenges around a prescription and stuff like that. So they, they, Because this is all on paper here. Interesting. And this, we, we actually need a leapfrog effect. So I would assume that uh, prescriptions and stuff like that will go first and maybe also appointments with doctors, especially when a new pandemia should show up and, and, you want, and vaccination is an issue and you have to actually look where you get your vaccination and stuff like that. So the, these things have proven to be totally unorganized and very, very complicated in many countries in Europe. And other countries were actually pretty good. So when you look, for example, at Italy and Greece, they managed it because they had centralized systems. Yeah. But they already had IT, and in Germany we still had paper. So there, there needs to be a con- some, somehow we have to move forward, but we cannot move forward on centralized systems because that's as as Gustav said that actually, well, from a human rights perspective, not okay if government starts collecting all the information about you. So the centralized systems are not are well. There were a solution in the. Uh, in, in the concrete case of uh, having yeah. a pandemia, they are not a long-term solution. So uh, Europe has to move together and they have to move together in the right direction. And they recognize that it is, has to be a decentralized direction. 
it's like a chicken and an egg problem because you hear you have the solution that we have now, which is terrible. But if we like, like take the prescriptions, that's a perfect example. You have it on paper. And here in the US, we stopped using paper for prescriptions, but it's like this shitty, terrible, centralized, like ad hoc system that's run by the pharmacies themselves. And it like is slow and there's no receipts and it never works. And there's no, you can't look up your data. It's, I'd rather go back to paper because then I can maintain copies of all my prescriptions and show it to if I go to a different specialized doctor or whatever. This is the worst. And so it's like, I could totally see how fast scaling is worse than slower scaling, but doing it in a smart way, like you're talking about. So I like, you always- The prescription is based on a verifiable credential, right? So it's issued by an authority, which is the doctor, and it's held by the holder, which is the patient, and then it's presented to a verifier, which is the pharmacy. So it's it's exactly the process that uh, verifiable credential describes. Thing that's so private that you don't want anyone to collect all the data for you. So it is a human rights issue. It is of interest for the people uh, using the doctor's services that not anyone can just go and look up on a centralized data bank where they went to which doctor and what kind of medicine they got. Yeah. So it needs privacy preserving like a verifiable credential. And going back to the travel document thing, a lot of times when you travel, if you travel with with prescriptions, you have to provide documentation of your prescriptions. And so I don't want to give like what a privacy breach that is that I have to tell the person who's scanning, you know, my bag at the airport, all of my medical data and go through all my prescriptions and my medical problems while 50,000 people are behind me listening in. Like what kind of world do we live in that that still happens? So could we connect this somehow, travel documents, prescription, medical data, where it's like you have your DID or your credential, it's proved, and you can just pass through? Yeah, you would probably have another credential, which basically says this person, uh, which is issued by your doctor again, which says this person needs the following types of medication and uh, can go and travel with that. And if, if this credential is then accepted in a worldwide way, then you could just show the credential to someone and then everything would be nice and and uh, and privacy preserving because you could show it also to a kiosk system or something yeah, where yeah. you don't. All these things are possible because uh, verifiable credentials can be presented as a QR code, right? So it's a, you know, that's enough. You don't need to read the information. And also they have something that what we call selective disclosure, which means that you don't have to, there might be some medication that you don't, want to take with you when you travel, but you still need it and you have it uh, at, at your home. So you could say, I don't want this to be shared because I don't take it with me right now. So then, then you right. don't share this very far credential. So all these things have been already worked in. And this is maybe uh, where you see how complex the uh, the system actually is and that it's not possible that a couple of crypto guys uh, build soulbound tokens with the same capacity. No, you can't do it with the same capacity because I know I'm reaching here, but you saw, you guys saw the, the earthquake in Morocco the other day, a thousand people died. Imagine if like, if a natural disaster happened, you allow the government to review your medical data and then they can send emergency personnel specifically to people that need the specific things. You have hurricanes here in Florida. They shut down the bridges and everything. But if someone has a heart attack who's maybe prone to it, a pacemaker, imagine like how how more efficient would the government be if we had something like verified credentials? It just blows my mind. That's actually a really cool idea that you would just share your uh, credentials as needed with a website uh, that collects the data of the people who are trapped somewhere 
And yeah. then all the stuff that's needed is just sent through a helicopter or something. And then at least it's they're all safe for the for the duration that they can't move out. And that could actually also be made in a very safe way when you have the right cryptography attached to it. And another thing which I, which actually struck me very much at this uh, call from the U.S. government was that they that they want something in there which is multi-show unlinkability, which means that you show if you show your credential once and you show the same credential to another person, that even if those two persons collude, they can never find out that that was the same credential. Oh. And this, this and if you if you see something like that in in the government call, you think like, wow, those people have really understood the issues. And uh, so uh, th this is totally amazing. And all these things are also possible with verifiable credentials, which is fantastic. So uh, that's that, that's really cool. I am just completely blown away by all this. As we're nearing the end of the the episode, is there any other thoughts that you guys have, or anything you want to add? I, I love how whenever we talk about these conversations, there's so many like very near term like use cases and applications we've we, we talked you know to a couple of different guests and all have different applications for it but it's nice to see that there's like it's actually happening because here i am sometimes on the other side of crypto land and i'm in crypto land and it's like crypto built for crypto people and i'm like when is this gonna be built for real normal people and actually provide use cases and applications to save lives save lives guys this is what it is Thank you. Thank you so much. Probably also why it takes so long because you have to you have to find you have to groom people to understand yeah. privacy, technology, politics, also existing systems. So if you, if we talk about the health system, for example, that's an old system. We can't reinvent it. That's tech people sometimes think, yeah, it's easy. I just make some app, and then uh, stuff is going to be different. But the, the systems behind it, they, they have grown for hundreds of years. And we really need translation to them in a way that their systems and the doctors can actually really use them. And that's a, that's a thing about thinking it through, what, what is really needed? How does it work? How does it interact with each other? And also, how do we create a usability for that stuff that also a, a doctor who's 65 uh, can still try to navigate through the systems that they have in place. And, and I think that's why it takes so long, because you can't just easily decide on, like you can in a startup. I mean, if we say we want something done in this and that way, then we just do it. But uh, if we just if we are aware that it's not just us doing something, that we also want to uh, have people, governments, system, infrastructure use the kind of technology then, for example, standardization is is needed, and it's it basically just came. So it's it's something relatively new. But also all the stakeholders around it who decide on human rights and and all these all these features that we created in in democracies, they also have to understand it. And it just takes a while, and probably will not take long anymore because now we are in that phase where people are waking up everywhere that. Uh, probably uh, a lot of things that come in technology are not just dangerous, but also very less dangerous than other technologies that we currently use. When, when I talked about verifiable credentials and DIDs like six years ago, uh, then people were uh, nicely listening and saying, oh yeah, this is crazy, but probably it's not going to happen, right? 
And uh, we, we decided to work on this thing because we were convinced that the standardization will actually, at one point in the far future, lead us to a world where uh, identity or digital identity is represented uh, by DIDs and verifiable credentials. And for us, it's fantastic. And I think that we, we saw that in, the, uh, in, in, this, in this podcast series here, uh, that industry, uh, government, blockchain world, everyone is basically moving into this direction and recognizing that the standard is the future. And uh, so th this is actually, it, it feels very good that we, uh, that we apparently saw this thing very early and uh, that we invested a lot of time and work and money and, and so on uh, into actually making this happen, not, not only building something, but also uh, going to conferences, contributing to the standards, being into the in, inside the standardization uh, process and stuff like that. So th that uh, that was very scientific and was a lot of fun, but also a lot of work. And uh, seeing something like that now slowly unfold in different sectors, not only in industry where I thought that it would happen, but also inside the government now uh, is just fantastic. Beautiful validation. I can hear it in your voice. It's 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 nice. It's sweet. It's nice to it's nice when you're working on something for so long to hear, especially from like the government saying, "Hey, this is finally what we need." It's a beautiful thing. Congratulations and, and thanks for joining us on the past couple of episodes, Ingo, Gustav. Thank you for, for joining us today. That's that's all the hot time we have today. A big thank you to our guests, Gustav Hummelmayer and Ingo Rube for sharing their insights on this important and timely topic. As you guys know now, it's saving lives. It's, it's clear that the landscape of identity verification is changing rapidly. Now it finally is. And it's going to be interesting to see how the governments and industries finally, finally connect and adapt to these changes, as we saw with, with Kilt Protocol. Thank you guys for listening to The Charlie Shrem Show, and we'll see you next time.